Al Jazeera podcast. Ecuador just voted for president, but there's still no definitive winner after one of the country's deadliest campaign seasons ever. Ecuadorans seem to all want the same thing as they went to vote for a new president. There's too much crime and poverty. All we want to do is live in peace. The security problems boiled over on August 9th, when the candidate Fernando Villavicencio was shot dead. Security has taken center stage since the August 9th murder of Villavicencio, a former investigative journalist and lawmaker who was gunned down while leaving a campaign event. On Sunday, candidates cast votes wearing bulletproof vests. The presidential candidates arrived to vote, flanked by you know, an extraordinary amount of special forces police. You know, it almost looked like a war zone. Now the country is heading for a runoff election in October, left with two potentials to choose from. Luisa González from the left-wing Citizens' Revolution Party came in first place. González's win was expected, but her lead contender's result wasn't. 35-year-old Harvard-educated businessman Daniel Noboa came in second place. So what's next? And can either of these candidates keep the country from descending further into violence? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. For everything we need to know about this election, we called up our correspondent, Lucia Newman. Hi, Lucia. Welcome back to The Take. Always good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. For our newer listeners, could you introduce yourself? I'm Lucia Newman. I'm the Latin American editor or senior correspondent for Latin America of Al Jazeera English. And where am I catching you today? I'm in Quito, Ecuador, again. All day Sunday and well into the night, she was watching the election and waiting to see if violence would erupt. Anything could happen, she told us. It was always going to be an unpredictable race, but few could have predicted that the son of one of Ecuador's richest men would sweep into a runoff presidential election. Daniel Neboa's father works in one of the country's most lucrative industries, bananas. But Lucia says Luisa Gonzalez, the frontrunner, also saw hope in her first-round win. This is the first time in the history of Ecuador that a woman gets such a high percentage of votes in the first round. Ecuadorians had plenty of reason to look for hope. Lucia's covered Ecuador for years, but her most recent trip before the vote was tied to the funeral of Fernando Villavicencio, who was a presidential candidate until August 9th, when he was gunned down and killed getting into a car after a campaign rally. Family, friends, and supporters of assassinated presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio accompanied his hearse to the cemetery, demanding justice. And Villavicencio's death was not the only one. So you're in Ecuador now to cover the elections, and it's been a very eventful few weeks, to say the least. Two politicians were assassinated earlier this month. What has the feeling been since these assassinations? What's the mood like? 
The mood is that these things are going from bad to worse. That sounds like a cliche, but it's exactly the feeling people have. It was like the culmination of an already horrible situation in which security and fear of crime, organized crime, small petty crime, gangs, uh, has become the number one issue in this country. The murder of Fernando Villavicencio, the candidate who was the most outspoken about drug trafficking, he called what this country has now a narco state. He was very, very critical of the government and of all of the institutions for being infiltrated by organized crime. And he had also singled out criminals by their name. So the fact that he was murdered in such a, a vicious way opened up a lot of questions as to how could that have happened? Where were his security guards? Why didn't the state provide him with safety? All of that, of course, has raised the level of fear and nervousness in this country. Then we've had other candidates killed. There was another candidate, a mayor, not a candidate, but a mayor was shot in another part of the country. So people are being killed all the time here. Murders are not unique, but murdering a presidential candidate certainly is something that had never happened in Ecuador before. The attorney general's office said one suspect was killed in the aftermath of the assassination and police detained six Colombian nationals along with a cache of weapons and cars. Six Colombian men were arrested in connection to this case, right? That was the first thing that happened. No sooner was Fernando Villavicencio killed that suddenly they had six people detained who were already, uh, you know, people, sort of the bad guys that they were looking for, for other, for other crimes, drug trafficking and so on. And they've been charged, but there's really no strong evidence, certainly that's been made public, that they really had anything to do with this. Are they scapegoats or were they really involved? Were they the hitmen? The other thing that is extremely suspicious is that the person who pulled the trigger, a very young man who apparently was Colombian, 19 years old, he pulled the trigger, he killed Fernando Villavicencio, and right away he was shot by the police. And instead of being taken to the hospital, he was alive, where he could be treated, where he could then be questioned. He was dragged away to the police station where he was allowed to bleed to death from his wounds. So many people are pointing to that as a way of trying to cover up the tracks of what really happened in this assassination. We know Villavicencio was a candidate and a former investigative journalist who had spoken out against the drug cartels. Is there any more information now about what happened to him? Do we know why he was targeted? We know that Fernando Villavicencio's security detail was not there, really. He only had two security guards next to him, even though he had been threatened uh, very, very seriously. This was public knowledge. And so people were saying, why didn't the government provide? And why didn't they give him a bulletproof car as he had requested? Why did the security guards that were there seem to be out to lunch, as they say, looking the other way? Why was it so easy for these gunmen to come here? People are pointing the finger at the head of the police force. We also know that a very well-known criminal gang leader called Fito, he's the head of the powerful Los Choneros criminal uh, syndicate in this country. The president sent in 4,000 soldiers and police to grab him from the prison cell that he was in, where he basically runs his business freely. Thousands of police and soldiers have raided a prison to remove a powerful gang leader. 
The man, known as Fito, has now been transferred to a maximum security prison. He's been serving a 34-year prison term for a drug dealing and murder offense. They seized weapons and ammunition and explosives and so on, and then they transferred this Fito to another prison nearby. The theory is that Fito ordered him to be murdered because Fito had uh, issued death threats against Fernando Villavicencio. So Fito was accused of ordering Villavicencio to be murdered. They're saying that this isn't true, that, of course, threats come and go all the time. But who's really behind his murder is something that is still a big mystery. We also know that the FBI has sent in a group of specialists, presumably to cooperate with the local police. But the local police are under very, very strong suspicion of having been involved, at least some members of the police. And it wasn't just Villavicencio. A local leader of the left-wing Citizen Revolution Party, Pedro Briones, was killed. A politician, a woman named Gisela Molina, was also shot. She survived. Do these attacks and these assassinations have anything to do with the election? It's assumed that they do. Probably not the mayor of Mayari. He he was not running for office. He had just been elected in the last election. But the other two, by the way, there's another there's another woman who was shot at, but she was only slightly injured. She was a candidate also for Congress. So th- it is assumed that they are related in some way to the election because these sort of things didn't used to happen normally un- until someone had already taken office. And then they could be uh, vulnerable to being threatened if they didn't do what these criminal organizations wanted. But right now, Ever since Fito, the head of this uh, Los Choneros criminal gang, was transferred to another prison and announced through his own members, and I'm quoting, that the blood of thousands of Ecuadorans will flow and stain the country unless Fito is safe and unless he's brought back to the cell where he belongs. That was the threat that was made by his gang and gang members who were actually in the same prison where 4,000 police had just been, where they had allegedly raided the whole place, cleaned it up, seized weapons, ammunition, and explosives. And all this goes to show you how it is actually the criminal gangs that control the penitentiaries in this country and not the security forces. That's something that we've known for a long time, but it was it was, it was was almost... Uh, grotesque to see how quickly they were able to issue a video where with hundreds of them sitting or standing in the prison area where they do their exercises, making this announcement and threatening the president that the blood of thousands of Ecuadorians will flow unless their leader is brought back. So there's a lot of uh, angst in this election. It's a mess. It's absolutely a mess. There's no security here and people know it. How do you hold an election after all of that? People are desperate for change. I think that we have to remind everyone that this election is taking place because the current president just couldn't keep ruling anymore. He called a snap election, which entails shutting down Congress for a short period. So that's that's the first thing. that The country is, is on hold since then. There's really nobody in charge, although there is technically the, the same president there. He's doing nothing. And so there's a sense that there's a power vacuum, that the institutions are absolutely falling apart, and particularly the ones that have to do with the the safety of, of ordinary people, because crime levels have reached unprecedented heights, uh, kidnappings, people being forced to pay uh, money for, to keep their shops open, robberies, murders. And then, of course, you've got the organized crime that's made Ecuador one of the main transport 
points for cocaine and for drugs that come from neighboring Peru and Colombia. How Ecuador got here, that's after the break. Frida Kahlo was a master of self-portraits. Her uncompromising oil paintings, always deeply personal, dealt with identity, the human body, and death. It wasn't until after her own death that she was regarded as a revolutionary artist. In hindsight, it's easy to see how the two Fridas can be reconciled into one extraordinary woman. I'm Charles Stance. Follow me as I follow the life of Frida Kahlo in Al Jazeera's docudrama series, Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Lucia, I want to take a step back to talk about how we got here. This was a presidential election, but there wasn't supposed to be an election. So what brought this on? President Guillermo Lasso, for the last year or two, has been under threat of impeachment for one thing or another. There have been a series of problems in this country that he's been incapable of, uh, of controlling. We're talking about prison riots, the most deadly in the world. Heavily armed security forces storm one of Ecuador's most dangerous prisons to stop days of rioting. We're talking about drug trafficking. Criminal groups fight to control routes to move illegal drugs. And we're also talking about strikes, general strikes that have paralyzed the country. And, of course, corruption charges against him and members of his government. So for all those reasons, he was under threat of of impeachment. For a while, he managed to skirt that. But now it looked like he would be impeached. And so he invoked an article that allows the president to shut down Congress and call for immediate elections to replace him. And that's what he did. He did this basically to try to ward off an impeachment hearing that would likely have led not only to his impeachment, but also possibly something worse, criminal proceedings. So that is what we're seeing now. And it's all been done in a rush in a country where there is this power vacuum. Wow. So can you paint us a picture of the political situation in Ecuador? Because President Guillermo Lasso was a conservative. He was president for just over two years. What else do we need to know about Ecuador's political history? It's basically a country that has had a long, long history of political instability, of changing governments once a year, once every six months. This goes back now for decades and decades, until finally, in 2000, President Rafael Correa, he won. And he was a left wing. He's still, the ex-president still is, the, the leader of a coalition called Citizens Revolution. And he became very, very popular Things were quite stable until corruption charges started once again to take over and the price of the the barrel of oil went down, on which, of course, this country depends. And so things started to go badly. Rafael Correa left in this huge scandal over corruption, not just uh, corruption that he was accused of carrying out, but also many members of his government. He was replaced by his vice president. President Moreno very quickly switched sides and became an enemy of Correa. And since then, everything has been about not allowing Correa or his 
supporters who have tried to come back to power from doing so because they say it will be a communist state, it will turn Ecuador into another Venezuela, etc., etc. But the truth of the matter is that the leading candidate for a long time uh, before this election was Luisa Gonzalez, who's precisely the representative of his citizens' revolution movement. The, uh, the instability has been constant, but it hasn't really been so much about ideology because the political parties in this country, perhaps with the exception of the citizens' revolution movement, are extremely weak. They don't really represent anything. People just sort of latch on to a party or a movement, they get elected, and then you have to wonder who, what they really represent. So you've talked a lot about the instability, but for many years, Ecuador had been seen as a peaceful country, a tropical oasis surrounded by the instability of some of its neighbors. It's the world's biggest banana exporter, and its relationship with the global north has been a good one for the most part. But those banana cases show up every now and again outside of Ecuador with cocaine. Italian police have uncovered more than two and a half tons of cocaine disguised as bananas. The haul from Ecuador has a street value of more than $1.3 billion comes after police found a further 600 kilos of cocaine and fruit containers. Now that cocaine is not necessarily from Ecuador, but it's been used as a route. Now Ecuador has been called a narco state. Is there a change happening in this country and a change happening in how it's perceived by the world? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Ecuador was always considered a peaceful country, but not a stable country. It's never been politically stable, but it wasn't a narco state either. And it certainly wasn't considered a violent country, as its neighbors, Peru and uh, certainly Colombia, have been for so long. But that that's no longer the case. In the last five to 10 years, it's gone from bad to worse. And now it's considered one of the very, very worst. And it's not just a few uh, tons of, of cocaine that are found in banana cases. It also goes out in their flowers. It's also one of the world's largest flower, especially roses exporters of the world. Uh, it's a beautiful country. It also has oil. It's a, probably the only thing where the cocaine isn't shipped out. But the ports are absolutely porous. And there's nobody controlling what comes out of this country. And that narco state label, does that feel accurate? The narco state, I've been asking around a lot, all sorts of different people and left, right, uh, lawyers, political analysts, even members of the current government, whether this was an accurate description. And to my surprise, they say yes. There are, is enough evidence of infiltration, penetration by powerful drug groups, not just the Latin American ones, also Albanian drug traffickers. A very, very important Albanian drug kingpin has been in that same prison where Mr. Fito was, and uh, from there he's allegedly been running the business. A lot of the drugs from Ecuador go to Europe, not to the United States. They go to Europe and Asia. So um, there is a very, very huge penetration. And the question is why, and the answer I would suggest, is because organized crime in this part of the world, as in everywhere else, always looks for the, the point of least resistance. And in this country, the resistance, in other words, a strong police force, a strong army, and a strong judicial system, and an organized government that saw the danger coming, has not existed. How are the people of Ecuador faring? The people of Ecuador are feeling 
abandoned, desperate, angry, because it's not just violence that's plaguing them. There is almost 70% unemployment and underemployment in this country, from bad to worse. Way back in more than two decades ago, Ecuadorans fled this country. They went to Europe, especially to Spain and other countries. Now again, we're seeing even a greater exodus of Ecuadorans to other countries, fleeing the poverty, the insecurity. They say that they've been waiting. Many people, especially people in the, you know, who are much older, are saying they've been waiting all their lives for their country to finally become a stable place, a, a kind place for them. And now, and I'm quoting a, a guy who's uh, 75 years old, who's selling brooms downtown, and who was once a professional. He says, the country we live in now, you can't even get a, a free piece of bread. And that, that made me extremely sad to hear him describe it this way. So it's not just violence. It's the economy, the health system, education. It's as though they're watching everything falling apart and they feel that they're helpless to do anything about it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Faranisa Campana, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.